Let's pray together. Father, it depends not upon the one who wills or the one who runs, but on you, the one who has mercy. And Lord, we know that we cannot do to ourselves on the inside, on our hearts, what we need you to do for us. And we know that we cannot in our own strength rescue ourselves from this body of death. And so we come to you as humble people crying out, you are our God. You are the one who shows mercy. You are the one who gives life. You are the one who gives the spirit. You are the God who saves. Lord, we pray that you would teach us who you are. We pray that you would make your mercy the defining reality of our existence. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be so overwhelmed by the wonder of your gracious, compassionate love that everything about us is changed. And Lord, we pray that you would be enabling us by this miracle that you do. We pray that you would enable us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And we pray that you would cause us to hear the call of the Master, to take up the cross, to follow him, and that we would do it. And along the way, Lord, we ask that you would make it true of us that we are taught of God. We pray that you would give us understanding into this, this most magnificent book that you've given to us. Lord, all these things we ask and more that we can't even begin to articulate in the brevity of our time. We pray that you would do a great work in our day. We pray that so many people would hear the gospel and be changed by the Holy Spirit that we would need more churches and more pastors. We pray that those who are aspiring to the office of elder here in this congregation, Lord, we pray that you would equip them and that they would be raised up and given places of service. And we pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you would grip our hearts and make us people who love you and love the scriptures people who are useful in our generation. We ask all this, Lord, for your glory in the name of Christ. Amen. I would invite you to open with me this morning to Exodus chapter 4. And I want to suggest to you that the central moment in the first two chapters of the book of Exodus, Exodus 1 and 2, is actually the rejection of Moses in Exodus 2, 11 through 15. And if you'd if you want to talk with me about how I see that or how I, how I understand the surrounding parts of that, reach out to me. I'll be glad to, to pass on to you what I think about that. But I just want to put out there, I think the, the, everything surrounding the rejection of Moses in Exodus 2, 11 through 15, is there to highlight that central moment 
when that Israelite or that Hebrew said in response to him, who made you ruler and judge over us? Well, the answer to that is the, the Lord. The Lord made Moses ruler and judge, but it's going to happen in the Lord's time. And uh, in Exodus 3 and 4, I think the central unit of this passage is in verses four, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, where Moses is given these signs that are to compel Israel to believe. So uh, as, we, as we look at Exodus chapter 4, as we begin, let me just draw your attention to 4.1, where Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen. And then if you drop your eyes down to verse 8, the Lord says to Moses, If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, and then he gives him more proving, vindicated sign, vindicating signs. And then look down at verse 31. The people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel. Okay, so I think that uh, the central episode of, of chapters 3 and 4 are these signs that are given to Moses that are meant to enable the people of Israel to believe when they hear what Moses tells them. But we know the rest of the story, don't we? And we know that these marvelous, mighty works that God gives to Moses here in chapter 4 are only going to have so much power. Because by the, by the end of chapter 5, if you look over at chapter 5 in verse 20, after Moses and Aaron have gone to Pharaoh and Pharaoh has said, Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? And then he makes their lives more bitter with even harder service. In Exodus 5.20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, Yahweh, look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So by the end of chapter 5, they're already not believing anymore. And we know that when they get out of Egypt, at various points, they're going to want to go back to Egypt. They're going to want to pick up stones to stone Moses. So there are signs to impel them to believe, but Moses is, Moses is aware of where the rest of the story, as he tells us this part, this part of the story. So why is this here? Well, I think this is here to show us the progressive nature of the work of God in saving his people. And I hope that's encouraging to every one of us. The progressive nature of the... The people are going to, at the end of chapter 4, they're going to believe and they're going to need to keep believing. They're going to need to persevere in, and make progress in the faith. And it's going to be a long, difficult road for the people of Israel. So let's look together at Exodus 4, verses 1 through 9. And um, just to, to set this up, uh, chapter 3 began. You'll remember in, in the first verse of chapter 3, he leads, Moses leads the flock of his father-in-law... And he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. At the end of chapter 4, they're going to be back at Horeb, the mountain of God. And then at Horeb, he sees this bush that is on fire, but it's not being consumed right, right after he gets to Horeb. And the Lord begins to speak to him out of the bush. And initially, the Lord says in Exodus 3.10, Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh. And Moses' first response 
I think evidence is humility in 3.11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Now, we've, we've, Moses has been showing us who he is. He's this, this miracle child who was preserved from death when the Pharaoh was trying to kill all the Hebrew children. And then, in the remarkable providence of God, he was raised up in the very home of Pharaoh and given all the wisdom of the Egyptians in his education. So, he, in some ways, he's perfectly placed to be the deliverer, but he's been humbled by 40 years of shepherding and having been rejected in chapter 2. And so now he's asking, who am I that I should go? And then as the Lord tells him there in verse 12, but I will be with you, which is the most important thing for all of us to grasp. We're not the point. It's the Lord with us that is going to enable us to do anything good for him. And then Moses says, essentially, well, who are you? What is your name for me to to, to tell the people of Israel when they ask, what is his name? And the Lord exposits that. And and now we come to the the third objection that Moses is going to give to the Lord. And, And this just boils down to, they won't believe me. The people won't believe me. And if we ask ourselves, why would he think this? The answer is not hard to find. They rejected him before. He went out, he went out to them. He tried to, to, to make peace between two Israelites who were fighting. He addressed the one who was in the wrong. And the response was, who made you ruler and judge over us? And so now, chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. So, so the concern is, they're just going to dismiss his claims. The Lord, I think, is merciful and compassionate. And as he's going to say of himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth. And what the Lord does here is is in keeping with his character. Because what he does is he begins to overcome, as he has been doing, he is overcoming Moses' objections. Who am I? I'll be with you. You're not the point. I'll be with you. Who are you? I am who I am. They won't believe me. Okay. Verse 2, the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. So Moses is out there shepherding the sheep. He's got a shepherd's staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. Now the text doesn't say that it became a cobra, but I suspect that's probably the case because cobras were were really significant for the people of Egypt and I think that what's being what's being anticipated here is the way that Moses in a sense is going to take Egypt by the tail and cause the snake to submit to the will of God as as he goes into Egypt and and proclaims God's word and announces the plagues and the plagues come to pass and finally the Pharaoh is forced to do exactly what Moses said. So I think that this first sign that God gives to Moses is anticipating the exodus from Egypt. I don't think it's just a just a magic trick, you know, just something that that looks flashy that Moses is supposed to show off. I think it signifies the way that Egypt is going to be taken under control. 
Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. And then the Lord explains in verse 5, that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 1, Yahweh did not appear to you. Okay, do this, Moses, that they may believe that Yahweh appeared to you. And the Lord doesn't stop there. He gives him another sign. Verse 6, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. There's an episode later in the Pentateuch that is like this too. Do you remember the, the occasion when, when Aaron and Miriam spoke against Moses and in judgment upon Miriam for her part in that, her flesh was made leprous like this as, as, a, as a rebuke from the Lord for her opposition of Moses. And then in God's mercy, she was cleansed of that leprosy, but she had to go outside the camp for the period of her cleansing. So what, what would be the signification of this? Well, given the fact that Moses wrote the whole Pentateuch, I, I would suspect that Moses wants us to see here, in the first sign, God is going to give you victory over Egypt, symbolized by the snake. In the second sign, God is going to defend Moses against everyone who opposes him. And so the Lord is mercifully, lovingly, graciously bearing with Moses' fear and his awareness that he's been rejected before. And I think that, Moses, that the Lord is equipping Moses to become like Christ. If Moses knew what he was going to have to deal with, when, when the Lord, I mean, in, the, in a sense, he knows. He knows they've rejected me. He knows this is the Pharaoh of Egypt. Pharaoh's not going to like this plan. He knows I'm going to bring this people out into the wilderness and have to provide for them the, or, or, or seek pasturage for them the way that I've been seeking pasturage for these sheep. He knows some of the difficulty, but I doubt, I doubt he could have anticipated all, all that the Lord had in store for him. And it's like the Lord is saying, Moses, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to set you up to be crucified on behalf of the people of Israel. That, that's, what's, that's what you're being prepared for. You, you, Moses, are becoming a type of Christ, the, the, the one who, who accomplishes, in a sense, redemption on behalf of the Lord, and then the one who shepherds God's people and bears with all of their rebellion. At points, they want to pick up, they, they pick up stones, and they intend to stone Moses. So Moses, that's what's in store for you, and here's how I'm going to prepare you for it. I'm going to show you that you're going to accomplish victory, and I'm going to show you that anyone who stands against you will come under my rebuke, under my judgment. So we have these powerful signs here. And the Lord, the Lord then says in verses 8 and 9, If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile. And pour it out on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood 
on the dry ground. And in, in the way that I've thought about those first two signs, I think you'll know where I'm going to go with this one. Because you know the story of the plagues and how in, in those plagues, all the waters of Egypt were turned to blood. So these signs, they are pointing, I think this is very important, important. these signs are pointing to the salvation that God is going to accomplish and the vindication of the one that the Lord uses. These are not just magic tricks. These are not just, just flashy, you know, uh, throw some fireworks or use some, some uh, pixie dust or some, you know, gunpowder to make a bang and a smoke. This is pointing to the kingdom of God. It's pointing to the work that God is going to do. But I think in the broader story, Moses also wants us to see that while these, these powerful signs may temporarily convince people here, as the narrative progresses, what we, what we begin to grasp is that what they really need is a heart change, a heart change that goes deeper than just being temporarily convinced by some, some powerful demonstrations of what God is going to do. They need to be made new on the inside. They need to be born again. I think that in the Gospel of John, in so many ways, John is depicting Jesus doing these signs. And you know, in in John chapter 3, Nicodemus says to the Lord Jesus, um, we see the signs and we know that God is with you. No one could do these signs except God was with him. And Jesus says in response, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I think what Jesus is, is suggesting to Nicodemus there is, in the same way that the signs that Moses did pointed to God's salvation and God's kingdom, so also the signs that I am doing are supposed to signal to you that I'm the Messiah, that I'm bringing in God's kingdom. I'm not just throwing down some gunpowder or making some fireworks flash. I'm br- These signs are about the coming of God's kingdom the accomplishment of God's purposes through God's anointed king from the line of David. That's what the signs are about, Nicodemus, and you won't see it unless you're born again. And I think Moses is telling that same story here in the book of Exodus. So uh, the Lord, he he gives these things to Moses, and and Moses has more questions. Objections. And and again, we see the Lord's mercy and kindness. Verse 10. Moses said that this 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 section is going to stretch through verse 17. And it's it's like the Lord is returning to this assertion that I will be with you. So verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. Literally, what Moses says here is, I'm not a man of words. I'm not a man of words, and I never have been. And then when he says, I am slow of speech and of tongue, it's interesting. Uh, he, he's objecting, and I, you know, I don't know exactly what Moses thinks about himself that makes him say this, that he's, he, he's slow of speech and slow of tongue, but I think there's an irony in the way that he writes up the story because literally what Moses has said here is, I am heavy of speech and heavy of tongue. And the, the Hebrew word for heavy is the same word that's often rendered glory. And, and, 
I think there's irony here because I I would propose to you that while, yes, Moses is saying something about his own deficiency, he's also pointing to the way that he is going to give to Israel through everything that God does in him and, and the way that God develops and grows him across the next 40 years, he is going to give to Israel the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And these, these five books are, are one of the world's literary masterpieces. These five books evidence throughout that Moses is a literary genius. He, if Moses is not a man of words, nobody is a man of words. I mean, what, if you just ask yourself the question this way, what books, what five books have been more influential in world history than Genesis to Deuteronomy? And, and you know, you might pick five other books from the Bible, but outside the Bible, it's going to be hard to find five books from one author this influential. So, so I think there's a little bit of irony in, in the way that Moses says, I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue, because hidden there, heavy of speech, heavy of tongue, is this double occurrence of, of the word glory. And I think Moses could be acknowledging, yeah, I thought that I couldn't do this. And look at what the Lord does with Moses by the end of his life. So clearly he's objecting, but I think he may also be signaling, pointing in the direction of everything that God would accomplish through him. Well, there's the Lord's response then in verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The Lord here is simply asserting himself as the creator, as the giver of every gift. And we should recognize that if we have eyes to see, we have been given a gift from God. We should not take these things for granted. If we have a tongue that works and moves like they're designed to do, we have been given a gift. We have ears. These are gifts that God has given to us. And the Lord is saying to Moses, you're not a man of words. Again, you are not the point. I'm the one who makes these things. I'm telling you to do these things. And then the Lord says there in verse 12, now therefore go. I've told you to do this. I said to light, and there was light. Why are you objecting? You have no business responding this way to me, I think the Lord is suggesting to Moses. You are my creation. I said to go talk. Your job is to go talk. Now, therefore, go, and then there's compassion, and I will be with your mouth. I will be with your mouth. Again, it's like Moses. You're not the point. I will be with your mouth. And then these next words are marvelous. And teach you. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. What we have here with the Lord's promise to Moses is going to be repeated down in verse 15 when the Lord provides Aaron for Moses. And he says to him again, In verse 15, you shall speak to him, to Aaron, and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and and will teach you both what to do. So the Lord is saying to Moses, 
that he's going to teach both him and Aaron what to do. And the reason that we had the call to worship that we did this morning from Isaiah 54 is because it's as though the prophet Isaiah is saying to his audience, you remember what the Lord promised to do for Moses at the first exodus? Well, this is what I'm going to do for you at the new exodus. All your children shall be taught of the Lord. As in, in the same way that, you know, Joel says, they'll all be prophets. You remember those, that occasion in, in Numbers when uh, there's the 70 have gone up on the mountain with Moses and the Lord gives to them a portion of the spirit that's upon Moses and they begin to prophesy. And Joshua comes to Moses and he's like, two guys are down in the camp and they're prophesying. And Moses' response was, well, I wish they all had the spirit. And then they would all instinctively know right and wrong, God's will from, from what God forbids. And Joel prophesies, a day is coming when they will all be prophets. And Isaiah prophesies, a day is coming when all God's children will experience what Moses and Aaron did. They'll all be taught of the Lord. And the Lord Jesus came along and he said in John chapter 6, he said in verse 45, it is written in the, well, let me read verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There again is that work of God, uh, that, that new birth, that interior work where the Lord does the change on the inside by drawing you to himself. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, Jesus asserts, comes to me. So if, if you have come to Jesus, and I, and I trust that most, many, a lot in this room have, if you've come to Jesus, you've been taught of God himself. You are experiencing the fulfillment of Isaiah 54, 13, and your experience is of the same quality as that of Moses and Aaron. This is the glory of of this new covenant. We don't just have one guy and his brother who have been taught of the Lord. We all know him, as Jeremiah 31 says. And if you're here this morning and you don't know whether or not you're a Christian, or maybe you came in thinking to yourself, I'm not a follower of Jesus, and I don't want to become a follower of Jesus. What we want to say to you is, don't resist. If the Father is drawing you, don't resist. If, if the Spirit is working in you and doing this work, embrace it embrace it you have the you you have the opportunity as you hear the scriptures to be taught of God to know God to be made right with him embrace it come to Jesus so the Lord is is graciously overcoming Moses objections and and we just saw verse 12 where the Lord makes this promise to Moses and in spite of that in spite of the Lord saying, Moses, I'm your creator. You're supposed to do what I tell you to do. And I'll be with you and I'll teach you everything you need to know along the way. Moses says in verse 13, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. I don't want to go. You do whatever you want to do. You send, you send by the hand of whoever you want to send, but not me. And and this is remarkable because, because we can all identify with Moses, every one of us, because we've all had the experience, every single one of us, of feeling a prompting in our hearts, having a sense 
I'm not supposed to be doing this. Or I should do this. And, and we know what right and wrong are. And we know that the wrong that we're contemplating, plunging headlong into, we should not be doing that. And we know that the right that we're thinking, maybe I should show that act of kindness. Maybe I should do that, that deed of generosity. Maybe I should make that sacrifice. Maybe I should serve that person. We know we should do that. And we've all responded like Moses. Get somebody else. It's not me. I don't, I don't want to do what you want me to do. And look at these next words in verse uh, 14. Then the anger of the Lord, the anger of Yahweh, was kindled against Moses. That expression is a, re- is a relatively common expression in the Old Testament. The anger of Yahweh was kindled against someone 17 times in the Old Testament. And what's remarkable is that on a number of those occasions, what happens here with Moses doesn't happen with the person against whom the anger of Yahweh is kindled. And, and this, is, this is crucial for us to see because it shows us that we are all guilty, even Moses. We are, if, if we experience God's mercy... It is mercy. It is not merit. So let me just show you a couple of these. The anger of, I just want to show you two. Deuteronomy chapter 28, or 29, Deuteronomy 29, verse 27. This is describing the situation after the Lord has destroyed Israel and and exiled the people, broken down the walls of Jerusalem, burned down the temple, the seven sons of the king will be murdered before him and then he himself will have his eyes gouged out so that that's the last thing he's ever beholding in his life and then he's hauled off to Babylon in shackles, imprisoned. And this is the explanation in verse 27 of Deuteronomy 29. Therefore the anger of Yahweh was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. So, one possibility is the anger of, when the anger of Yahweh is kindled against you is all the curses warned come down upon your head. Here's another possibility. 2 Samuel chapter 6. You remember this occasion. David is bringing the ark of, of the Lord into Jerusalem, but he hasn't studied the Bible or he haven't, hasn't refreshed himself on the Bible's instructions on how that was supposed to be done. And so instead of carrying it on these poles that go through the rings in the corners of the thing by a particular tribe of the clan of the Levites, instead of that, they got the ark on on an ox cart like the Philistines transported it. And this guy Uzzah reaches out to touch it. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 7, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. So the anger of God is kindled against Uzzah and the Lord kills him. The anger of, the, of, of God is kindled against Israel and eventually he's, his patience is exhausted and he exiles them. The anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses and he's patient with him. And he continues to overcome his objections. And he provides, look at what happens next here in in verse um, 14. Then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. 
Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So the Lord's anger against Moses is kindled, and he says, you know, Moses, it's, it's almost as though, let me elaborate a little bit. You know, Moses, I know that this could be a lonely operation, so I'm going to send somebody in with you. I'm going to send somebody. I know that you think those Israelites rejected me. They won't listen to me this time. I'm going to give you somebody who's with them on the inside. Somebody that has established a reputation among them. Somebody to whom you're probably expecting them that they will listen. I'll provide your brother to you, Moses, and he'll join you. It's so gracious and kind and compassionate. Why? Why is it death to Uzzah, exile for Israel, kindness and mercy? To Moses. I mean, the anger of the Lord, kindled against, is there in all three of those instances. I think the answer is later given by the Lord Himself in Exodus chapter 33, when on another occasion, uh, Moses makes a request that's pretty audacious. Moses says, Please show me your glory. And the Lord responds to Moses in Exodus 33 19. I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And then he adds this. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And what this is showing us is that there's really no difference between Moses and Uzzah. And there's no difference between any of us that have experienced God's mercy and the people outside the walls of this place who will never know God's mercy. No difference in terms of the choices that we make, in terms of the quality of our character, in terms of the effort that we make. It's not up to us. God doesn't decide to save us because we make the right choice or because we extend a certain amount of effort or because, no, no, that's not how it works. It all goes down to God's mercy. It all goes down to him choosing, I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. And I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. And what this does is it strips away from us any ground for boasting, any ground for self-righteousness, any, any room for thinking, well, we're the good people. No, there's no grounds for any of that in our hearts. And what it also does is it forces us to recognize that everything that we have is the mercy of God. Every, you've probably heard me tell this story of an occasion when I was a first-year seminary student at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I was totally out of money, and I go to my box, and there's a note on a little pink piece of paper that tells me that somebody called the school and made an anonymous donation to, to pay off the rest of my tuition. But since I had already paid the money, I was to come to the office and receive reimbursement in the form of a check. And, and I stood there at my box, and I tried to think of what I had done right. I tried to think of what I had done that was good, that would prompt the Lord to do this kindness to me. And I was forced to recognize that's not how it works. God doesn't do good for us because we did something right or we made some right choice. It's all mercy. It's all Mercy. So the anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses and the mercy is poured out instead of the wrath. It's all mercy. If you're 
If you're, if you're hearing God's word this morning from the book of Exodus, it's mercy. If, if you're in your heart, you think to yourself, the Lord is so kind. And that's God's mercy at work in your life. What, Mo- what the Lord is doing with Moses, in a way, is like what the Lord's going to do with the people of Israel. Because the people of Israel are going to need a lot of merciful kindness from the Lord. And he's going to lavish it upon them. And he's going to bring them along. And whatever was written in former days, Romans 15.4, was written for our instruction so that by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Hope that God's mercy will extend to us just as it did to Moses, just as it does to Israel. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Moses provides Aaron. He's going to speak to the people. Verse 16, he shall speak for you to the people, the people that rejected Moses. And he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. These kinds of thoughts are going to come up again in chapter 7, verse 1. But, you know, as you think about the rest of the narrative, Moses does a lot of talking. And there just aren't that many occasions when Aaron is the spokesperson. So it's like the Lord mercifully provides for Moses, and that enables him to do what the Lord is calling him to do. Then verse 18 and following. Uh, Verses 18 through 20. This is why we had the New Testament reading from Matthew. Listen to these verses. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Everybody seeking to kill Moses is dead. And, and this whole scenario is going to be repeated in the life of Jesus. When you've got a, a Joseph, who's a son of Jacob, and he's having dreams, and he's, his, his wife has born this figure who's going to be like a new Moses. And they go down to Egypt, and then they get called out of Egypt, and, and Jesus accomplishes a salvation that far exceeds the one that Moses is going to lead the people to. Verse 20, so Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. I don't think this is just about the snake and the staff. I think this is pointing to the ten plagues. This is is pointing to the, the, the visitation of the Lord's wrath on Egypt. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. As we proceed through Exodus, we're going to see more of this. The Lord is twice going to say, I'm going to harden his heart. And then Pharaoh is going to start hardening his own hearts, his own heart. And and what's happening is there's a coming together of God's purpose for Pharaoh and Pharaoh's own desire. And, And the Lord is the one who is ultimately sovereign over all these things. There's a There's a concursus, a coming together of the courses so that Pharaoh chooses to do exactly what the Lord intends for him to do. And obviously the Lord is ultimate in all these things. Verse 22, then you shall shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, uh, this is really significant because earlier in the Bible, it was as though... Adam, the first man, 
was the Son of God. And, and that is directly articulated in, in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. Luke works back through the genealogy, and he says, you know, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's Luke 3.38. And, and the, that conclusion that Luke came to, that Adam, the first man, was in some sense God's son, is also evidenced in Genesis 5, where we're told that God made Adam in his own image and likeness, and then Adam had a son in his likeness. And so if Adam's son, Seth, is in Adam's likeness as his son, then it would seem that Adam, in God's image and likeness, is, Adam's, is, is God's son. And so, so whereas Adam was God's son, now the nation is like a new Adam, as God's firstborn son. So there's this dynamic that's created between God's purposes for Adam and God's purposes now for the nation of Israel. And then what, what is said next anticipates the Passover. He says, uh, you shall say to Pharaoh, in verse 22, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And, and this verb, avad, this is one of the verbs used to describe uh, the Lord putting Adam in the garden in Genesis 2.15, to work it and keep it. The word translated work there is the same word translated serve here. So Adam was to serve the Lord by working the garden, and now the Lord wants the people of Israel to come out and serve him in their work. Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. It's like the Lord is saying to Pharaoh, you need to understand who God is, Pharaoh. And I will have my way. And you will let my son go. And you can either let him go and have your son live, or you can, you can choose that I will kill your son and force you to let my son go. And, you know, as, as the story unfolds, you're going to have the Passover. And the Lord is then going to explain that by means of the Passover and by means of the death of the firstborn, he redeemed the, the firstborn of all Israel for himself. And instead of the firstborn, he takes the Levites. So there's a dynamic here that, that anticipates what happens at the Passover where God's son is delivered by means of the substitute, the death of the lamb. And Pharaoh's son, all the firstborn of Egypt, they all die. This is the dynamic that's fulfilled in the death of Christ. We, who are under the mercy of God, are redeemed by the death of God's firstborn son, the Lord Jesus. And anybody that doesn't come under the cross, come under the blood of Christ, anybody that doesn't place their faith and hope in him, they're going to die under the judgment of God. So it's, it's really interesting that this, this Passover kind of passage about the Son of God and Pharaoh's son immediately precedes this mysterious passage about circumcision. I'm sure that maybe, maybe many of you were reading Exodus 4 this week, and um, I know that some of you talked to me. What is going on uh, with this circumcision bit? So let's read these next two verses, next three verses. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him apparently Moses, and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. 
So he let him alone. The Lord didn't kill Moses. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, there are all kinds of interpretations of this that I'm not going to get into. I'm just going to tell you exactly what I think is going on here. I think that Moses has not circumcised his son in keeping with Genesis 17. That, the, that we read earlier in the passage, so that if you're going to be part of the covenant with Abraham, you must circumcise your, your, your sons. And Moses hasn't done it. Why hasn't, he, why hasn't he done this? Well, the Lord, it's like, look, Moses, if you're not going to bring your own son into the covenant, if you're not going to embrace the terms of the covenant, this will be the end and I will kill you. And Zipporah recognizes the situation, apparently because she knows the stories, she knows the terms, and for whatever reason, they haven't done it. <clears throat> and so now at last, she does it. And, and fascinatingly, I said to my wife uh, uh, at the New Testament reading, you know, I think it's just magnificent the way that Matthew weaves in so many pictures and patterns from the Old Testament in the early chapters of his gospel. And I leaned over and said to Jill, the Bible is awesome. And she says back to me, God is awesome. I'm like, yes, absolutely, no doubt. Um, <clears throat> so we've got, we've got uh, Passover and circumcision here in Exodus 4. And notice how um, when she had cut off the foreskin, she touched Moses' feet with it. Well, over in Genesis chapter 12, the next occurrence of this word for touch is in the statement, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. So what, what Zipporah does is also anticipating what the people of Israel are going to do when they touch the blood to the doorposts and the lentil on the night of Passover. And then right after that, um, in, in Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 43, I'm sorry, not verse 43. can't read my own handwriting. Oh, it is verse 43, sorry. Um, then there are these instructions about the Passover that include a requirement for circumcision. And in verse 48, no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. So it's like in Exodus 4, you get the circumcision of Moses' kid, followed by um, the touching of Moses' feet, anticipating the Passover, right after the mention of the death of Pharaoh's son, which is going to happen on the night of Passover. And then in Exodus 12, you get the touching of the, the doorposts and the lintel, and the requirement of circumcision, and then, of course, that night Pharaoh's son is going to die. So I think that Moses has set this up so that we think of the covenant that God made with Abraham, that he is now in, fully entered into, and the, the accomplishment of salvation at the Passover and the death of the lamb in place of the Israelite firstborn. What does that mean for us today? Well, I think it means that we need to embrace everything the Bible teaches us, particularly things like baptism. If you're a believer in Jesus, Jesus said, go make disciples, baptizing them. If you're a believer in Jesus and you have not obeyed him by going under the waters of baptism, you're like Moses, thinking, I'm, I'm in the covenant, but you haven't circumcised your son. And, and the Lord the Lord means to address that. He, he wants, I'm not saying he's going to put you to death, but he wants you to obey. Uh, and then in verses 27 and following, we have the, the resolution of this, this section of the narrative. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. The Lord tells Moses, I'm going to provide Aaron. And then the Lord prompts 
Aaron. The Lord is faithfully, lovingly, graciously meeting Moses' needs. Go into the wilderness to meet him at the mountain of God. So back at Horeb where they were in the wilderness like Exodus 3.1. So the, and, and he goes out and he kissed him. And then verse 28, Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke just as the Lord said he would, all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel. And we talked last week about how um, as he died, Joseph said, the Lord will surely visit you in Genesis 50, verses 24 and 25. Now the people are hearing that the Lord has visited them and they believed. And the people, so the people believed And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. And you remember the end of chapter chapter 2 where the Lord saw and he knew. They bowed their heads and worshipped. The appropriate response to the mercy of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we think about your mercy and kindness to us. Lord, we know that we have been people in response to whom it could so often be said and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And Father, you have chosen to be merciful. You have chosen to extend your steadfast love. And so we say with our whole hearts that salvation belongs to you. You are the God who saves. You are the one who deserves praise. Lord, we pray that you would guide us, that you would teach us. We pray that it would be true of us, that we are all taught of God. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to know who we are. We are your children, heirs of God for whom the Lord Jesus himself is interceding and with whom the Spirit is interceding when we don't know how. Lord, we pray that all these things would encourage our hearts and cause us to bow in worship to you. And we ask it in Christ's name.